We um, have been dealing with uh, the Gospel of Mark and how he is, uh, has written Mark chapter 7 and all that is going into this uh, rather complex um, instruction and encouragement by Jesus to his disciples and to those who are gathering around him, who are, who are, are gathering to hear and to see and to touch and be touched by Jesus. And those who gather out of curiosity, those who want to challenge Jesus, who want to find fault in this young rabbi, who want to trap him and call him out for being blasphemous, to find any cause to have him arrested, removed, and done away with. Last week we considered how the Pharisees and the scribes were those who came down from Jerusalem or came up from Jerusalem to Galilee to do just that the challenge, to set a trap, and to be able to show where Jesus is not all that he is cracked up to be, that he is blasphemous and a scoundrel, that he is going, working against God. That was the, the, the purpose for the Pharisees and the scribes to make their way from Jerusalem to Galilee. And if we remember in those, in those verses, in verses 1 through 23, we have this episode where the Pharisees and scribes have gathered with these masses of people. Remember, as Jesus traveled in the Gospel of Mark, everything is happening so fast. I mean, it's just one thing after another. The Gospel of Mark uses the word immediately a lot because things are just happening, bang, bang, bang. And as Jesus is traveling and teaching, he's healing, he's offering miracles, he's feeding the hungry, and people are hearing this, and they're seeing it, and they're proclaiming it, and the crowds are gathering in mass. There are crowds that are following him wherever he goes. There are crowds who meet him wherever he goes. Because his reputation is beginning to go forward in front of him. And there is no peace, there is no comfort, there is no respite for Jesus and his disciples as they travel in this countryside. And in verses 1 through 23, we have Jesus in this, in this complex situation. And the Pharisees and scribes arrive to further complicate. And as they watch these Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, as they watch Jesus and his disciples, they notice something peculiar. And they raise the question. They basically say, Jesus, we have been watching you and we have noticed something that is not right. And you need to explain yourself and explain your disciples. We have noticed that they have purchased food from the marketplace. They did not properly prepare it ritually for, to be eaten, and they certainly haven't washed their hands. This is against our tradition. This is against the tradition of the elders. This is all wrong. Explain yourself. Well, how many of you have ever eaten anything without washing your hands. Now be honest. I certainly have. 
I mean, in our household, there's the five-second rule. Something falls to the floor, it's good for five seconds at least. Depending on what it is, it may be good for a minute. Well, here's these disciples. They were hungry. There's no rest in this, in following Jesus. It's, it's just constant. And so they, they get some food and they eat it. But they didn't follow the, the tradition and the protocol to be ritually clean. Well, this was a problem for the Pharisees who upheld the oral traditions of the elders. Their traditions went beyond what was written down in the law. They had a whole catalog of oral traditions that were to be followed rigorously. And now these disciples from Galilee, these backcountry folk, they're not getting it. They're not doing it. And their leader, this rabbi, this teacher, is allowing it to happen. When Jesus explains to them, it's not what goes in the body that defiles a person. It's not the food. It's what comes out of a person. What's within the person is what's defiling. It's their heart. It's their will. It's their motivations and their intentions. That is the defilement of a person. I don't know how this sat with the Pharisees. He probably didn't sit well. You know, when I was in, in school, I took a class, and he was, um, the professor was a, a consultant. He did organizational consulting and organizational change and development and that kind of stuff, team building. And he was telling us about a project, an engagement that he had with the military, uh, with the U.S. Army. And he was working with um, the U.S. Army's uh, artillery um, units. And he said that as he... Um, he, he, was, he was meeting with them, and they went to, out to the firing range. And he was just going along to observe and take notes about what they did, how they did it, why they did it. And um, they, 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 one of the units went out, and um, they were kind of getting everything ready, and they were all in place. And, and, he, and he was watching as the commander was kind of checking everybody out. He noticed there was one soldier who was kind of standing off to the side, not doing anything. But he, this consultant noticed it in every unit that came forward. There was one guy, one soldier, who stood off to the side, who didn't do anything. While everyone else was getting everything ready and the commander was, was observing and supervising and giving commands, there was one guy who stood way in the back out of the way, and did nothing. And so the consultant, when they met, he asked a question. I noticed in every unit that came forward, there was one guy who didn't do anything and was always in the back in the same place. What is this soldier's purpose? What is this soldier doing? Well, that soldier holds the reins of the horse. What horse? The colonel's horse who's the commander of the unit. There was no horse. No, but there used to be. Back when we had horses and everybody rode a horse, this was the soldier's job, was to hold the commander's horse. 
but there's no horse. It's funny how we pass traditions along, and they lose meaning, they lose purpose. And that was what was happening with the oral traditions of the ancient Israelites. These traditions were to point back to God and our relationship, the Israel, Israel's relationship to God, how to be separate, but how to be God's people in the world, but not of the world, how to be holy in an unholy world, how to be light in a dark world. All of, this was, all of these traditions were symbols pointing back to God. And along the way, these traditions lost their way. They lost their purpose. And they no longer serve the purpose of pointing to God and pointing to the relationship that exists between Israel and God. Before long, they just became barriers, borders between people. The Gospel of Mark is dealing with that situation. Jesus is dealing with this whole paradigm of how we allow traditions, human traditions, to become barriers, borders, and categories that keep us separate from one another and keep others separate from God. When Mark was written some years and decades after Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, that was the problem in the early church. The early church was comprised mainly, was, came out of the Jewish synagogues, Jewish Christians. But at the same time, or a little later, when Paul and then Peter began to proselytize and evangelize the Gentiles, we have two distinct cultures meeting in the church. Mark was addressing this problem. There were Jewish Christians who wanted to honor the traditions. And there were Gentile Christians who didn't even know the traditions. How do we bring these people together? How do we remove the barriers and the borders and decompartmentalize and do away with categories? Jesus. Jesus does that. In our passage today, beginning in verse 24, we see again how Jesus is breaking down these barriers, just crashing through barriers to bring people together, to allow, to show people, to reveal to people that we have freedom to respond to God. We all have a freedom to respond to God. This is a very troubling passage. It's a hard saying of Jesus. And when we read it, when we hear it, we're going to see just how hard this is. Let us read Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 37. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This, was, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In this passage, we have Jesus traveling from Israel proper to beyond its borders to a Gentile region, a Greek-speaking region a pagan region. We're not really sure why he went there. The gospel tells us that he was probably seeking some respite, a break from all these crowds, from the pressure of this daily, weekly, monthly ministry. And we're told he goes into a house, and we're not sure whose house this was, where it was located. We just know it was in a house in a Greek-speaking area, a Gentile region, a pagan area. Which begs the question, what kind of house is this? Is this a Jewish home? Was it a clean home? Was it a righteous home, a holy, separate place? Where all the dishes and the pots and pans, ritually... ritually Ritually cleansed. Sometimes it's easier to think than to say. These are questions that come to mind. You know, when I was a, a boy, my mother worked with this woman named Phyllis, and Phyllis was a wonderful, wonderful woman. She was a, um, kind and gracious. She was Jewish in her heritage and in religion and in her faith. She wasn't an extremely orthodox uh, Jewish woman. She was more moderate. Um, but her son was very, very orthodox. Her son had moved to Israel to live and to kind of grow deeper into his orthodox faith and religion. And when he would come home, when he would come back to the States, Phyllis would have to get the house ready. She'd have to prepare everything as to the best of her ability, to get the home where, it could, where he could enter it and be a safe place for an Orthodox Jew to live for a while. But she never could get everything, because she, she, not being Orthodox, she, she didn't do all of those kinds of Orthodox traditions. 
So there was one occasion when he came, and she was telling my mother about it, and so I got, I got to hear the story as well. He came home, and he asked his mother, were the dishes clean? Were they ritually clean? She said, well, they're, I've washed them, and they're in the, they're in the cabinets. He said, but have you, have you washed them in running water, living water? She said, well, like I said, I've, I've washed them. She said, well, he said, well, I, I need to know if you take them down to the river and wash them. And she said, no, they're clean. And he said, well, I'm going to have to take them and cleanse them. So he took all of the pots and all the pans and the plates and the dishes, the glasses, the flatware, and he took and put them all in a box, put them in his car, and he drove down to the Wakala River to the state park, the city park. And he waded out into the river and he began to wash all of these pots and pans and dishes and plates. My mother was telling me this story. My mother kept wondering, I wonder what the people down there thought of this young man wading out into this river to wash all of these dishes and pots. My mother said, I don't think people in Wakulla County have ever seen that before. I don't think people in Tallahassee had seen that before. There weren't very many Orthodox Jewish people in Tallahassee. Reformed, perhaps. And it just makes me wonder, to think back on that occasion, how strong traditions are. Think about that soldier holding the horse that no longer is used. Think about these, this young man who would not be able to eat in his mother's home without first washing these dishes in the river. That's the barrier and the borders that humanity creates. And we hold fast to these borders and these barriers. Because it tells us who we are. We think it tells us who we are. And we think it tells us who they are. And that is precisely what is happening in all of chapter 7 of Mark. Jesus is breaking down all of these barriers and these borders and these categories and compartments that we want to set aside that lets us know who we are and who they are. He breaks through all of them. We get it even in the geographic location as he breaks through the border of Israel into a Gentile Greek region. And he allows a woman, a woman, first of all, not traditionally welcome to speak to a Jewish man, a Gentile woman, a pagan woman, a Greek-speaking woman, to approach him. To speak to him. To petition him. And his response seems so harsh that he came not for her, but he came for the Jewish people. He came for the children and not for the dogs. He calls this woman a dog. That's harsh. But in that day and that time, culturally, that meant 
a Gentile. A derogatory term for a Gentile, but a Gentile. His disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus knew exactly what he had said. The woman probably knew exactly what had been said. That Jesus didn't come for the Gentiles. He came first for the Jews. And then from the Jews, we will get to the Gentiles. But what a harsh way to put it. Scholars have wrestled with this, and they have offered all kinds of explanations, none of which really help. That Jesus was tired, he was burned out, emotionally drained, and he just snapped. Or maybe when he said it, his tone was that, that he was just joking. He was, he was kind of teasing out the woman's faith, her understanding of who he was. It was a wink. No matter how we look at it, there is a harsh interaction here. A dehumanizing interaction. But here's the barrier that's broken. A dehumanizing barrier. When the woman counters, but even the dogs under the table Eat the crumbs that fall from the children's plates. We find this barrier between Gentile and Jew, between clean and unclean, between man and woman, between Greek and Jew. Splintered. Flattened. Done away with. Because when this woman was so bold to petition Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the presence of God, the barrier was broken down because Jesus was in her presence. Jesus acknowledges her boldness in her petition, the boldness of her words, and her daughter is healed. Maybe that's what we should just kind of walk away with. Maybe that's the point of the entire chapter 7, is that Jesus arrives on the earth to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come near and is present in Him as the Son of God. And in that presence, in the work of God through Jesus Christ, the barriers that humans make, that we are so good at, these borders and these barriers and these compartments and categories that create us and them. Jesus has broken them all down and has given us the freedom to respond to God's grace, no matter who we are, child or dog, pagan or faithful, Jew or Gentile, man or woman. Maybe that's the point that Jesus drives home when he crosses that geographic border into a Gentile area and has this exchange with a Syrophoenician woman and heals her possessed daughter. That even the pagan, even the unclean, can be so bold to petition God. And if that is true, 
when we pray every week, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If we are honest enough with ourselves, we are just like that woman, that dog, who are bold enough to petition God, to say, God, I'm hurting, I need help, and you can help me. That's a bold word. And this Syrophoenician woman teaches us that. And Jesus grants her petition. So maybe as we make our way through the rest of the week, and maybe the rest of the month, and maybe the rest of the year, maybe we can begin to pray with boldness. The boldness of a Syrophoenician dog, a Gentile woman, for God to help us. And to see ourselves unhindered by barriers and borders that we have created, that humans have created to separate us, not just from each other, but from others to God. And if we can live and pray with that kind of boldness, we will live that kind of boldness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.